As everyone's aware here, it was in 2005, 10 years ago, uh, the purpose of our occasion today that the Supreme Court ruled that the city of New London, Connecticut could condemn residential properties and transfer them to a private developer for planned office space and other facilities, which benefits never materialized. Uh, although the Fifth Amendment permits taking private property only for public use, the court held that transfers to private parties for economic development were a sufficiently public purpose. This unpopular ruling triggered an unprecedented political and judicial reaction with 45 states passing legislation limiting their eminent domain laws. But many of these changes imposed few genuine constraints, as we'll see. In his study of this controversial case, the first book-length analysis of Kilo by a legal scholar, Ilya Soman argues that the ruling was a grave error. Economic development and blight condemnations are unconstitutional under both originalist and living constitutionalist theories of interpretation. They also victimize the poor and politically weak, as the congressman just said, and often destroy more economic value than they create. Here to talk about the case and what we've learned in the decades since is the author of The Grasping Hand, Kilo versus City of New London and the Limits of Eminent Domain, Ilya Soman, uh, followed by commentary by the two attorneys who argued the case, Wes Horton and Scott Bullock. I will introduce each of them before he speaks. Ilya Soman is a professor of law at George Mason University and an adjunct scholar at Cato. Before his appointment at George Mason, he was the John Olin Fellow in Law at Northwestern University and clerk for Judge Jerry Smith of the Fifth Circuit. In addition to the grasping hand, he's the author of Democracy and Political Ignorance, Why Smaller Government is Smarter, and co-author of A Conspiracy Against Obamacare, The Golok Conspiracy and the Healthcare Case. Soman is widely published in the scholarly and popular press and as a member of the Volokh Conspiracy is a prominent blogger. Finally, because of the bizarre phenomenon of Ilya confusion that has arisen in some circles, I should note <laughs> that although we share a common Russian name, Ilya Soman and I are different people. Thank you so much. Uh, I'd like to start by thanking the Cato Institute for organizing this event uh, and all of you for coming. I'd also like to thank Ilya Shapiro for moderating. Uh, and in particular, I'd like to thank my two co-panelists, both of whom spent probably far too much time generously giving of their time being interviewed for my book, rereading over the manuscript. They really saved me from a lot of mistakes. I also hope that I never have to pay them just compensation for the billable hours that they probably gave gave up, uh, particularly in the case of Mr. Horton, I think in the uh, Institute for Justice, it being a public interest organization, I don't think you have billable hours, but I hope the public interest didn't suffer too much because of the- Time and effort is still valuable. <laughs> it's, 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 it's still valuable, but not as valuable as the kind of time that can actually be built. And we do, uh, so, and we do uh, collect uh, attorneys. Yeah, May, uh, I'd like to uh, go on, and obviously uh, we're gathered here today to talk about the Kilo decision, which focuses on the question of when government can condemn property uh, and when it cannot. The Fifth Amendment says you can only condemn it for a public use, but there has been a long-standing debate over what exactly counts as a public use, and that's what my book is about, and also, of course, that's what the Kilo decision focused on. So in the first part of my presentation, I'll briefly discuss the Kilo decision itself and the events in New London that led up to it. Uh, then I'll go on to explain why I think the decision was wrong 
wrong, both from the standpoint of originalism and also living constitutionalism. Uh, I'll next discuss some of the practical harms that arise from economic development condemnations like the one in the Kilo case and also the closely related blight condemnations, uh, which are similar to those takings, though in some ways also distinct. Uh, finally, I'll talk about the massive and in many ways unprecedented political and judicial reaction to Kilo, which went beyond that which we see with almost any other Supreme Court decision in some ways perhaps in all of American history. Uh, so first things first, the Kilo case itself and how it arose. It arose from somewhat unlikely origins in a development project in New London, Connecticut, where the city government and this uh, quasi-private organization that they had set up called the New London Development Corporation was seeking to redevelop a somewhat depressed part of the city. And as part of their plan to do so, they ended up trying to condemn a total of 15 residential properties in order to take them for transfer uh, to be part of this private development project. In the state court, 11 of the 15 condemnations initially in the trial court were struck down because the trial judge said they didn't actually have a clear plan for what they were going to do with the land. However, the case was then appealed to the Connecticut Supreme Court, which upheld all 15 takings uh, in a closely divided four to three decision. And then to the surprise of many people, including myself, the case got all the way to the US Supreme Court. It was surprising because before before Kilo, there already was precedent going back to the 1954 case of Berman versus Parker, which pretty much said that a public use is almost anything that the government says that it is. So most people believed before Kilo that the issue was settled, and most experts thought that all right-thinking people more or less agreed that the government can condemn property for almost any reason that it wanted to. However, the case did get to the Supreme Court uh, and became a national sensation, uh, one that we still talk about 10 years later. Uh, before talking about the decision itself, it's worth pausing briefly to see what happened in New London itself as a result, in case you already heard some mention of this, uh, but it's worth seeing some before and after images. This is Suzette Kilo's famous Little Pink House, which was one of a number of properties condemned uh, as a result of this decision. This is what it looked like before the taking. This is what the same site looks like today in a photo that I took last year. You can see even some of the rubble from the foundations of our house has not yet been cleared away, uh, and so nothing has actually been built. However, it would be wrong to say that there have been no beneficiaries of the Kilo takings because a colony of feral cats have, in fact, taken up residence on the property. This is one of them. Uh, there are even some improvised feral cat shelters that some nice people people have built on the land, probably legally, I'm not sure, but probably legally. So there is development of a sort. Uh, there is now a plan by the city government to build a memorial on one of the sites, a memorial to victims of eminent domain. If that plan uh, is borne out, it will be development of a sort, but probably not the kind of large-scale economically beneficial development that uh, was originally expected. Uh, so the Kilo case itself, uh, returning to what the Supreme Court did, uh, what the court essentially did in a close 5-4 decision uh, is that they chose between a couple of different approaches to public use. Uh, for 200 years, there's been a debate between what I in the book called the narrow conception of public use and the broad one adopted by the court. The narrow conception 
fits people's intuitive definition of what a public use might be, that is some sort of government-owned facility, such as a land or a bridge or some other infrastructure, or if it's going to be privately owned, it must be something that the general public has a legal right to use, such as, for example, a public utility or the like. On the other hand, there is the broad view of public use, the one adopted by the court in Kilo and in previous decisions going back to the 1950s, which says pretty much that a public use is virtually anything that might provide some sort of benefit to the public, including in this case economic development, and the government doesn't even necessarily have to prove that the supposed benefit will actually materialize. We saw in the Kilo case it didn't. Uh, they just have to make a minimally plausible assertion that uh, the benefit is going to happen. Uh, and the court in the close 5-4 decision upheld this, this condemnation project and endorsed once again the broad view of public use. So in one sense, you could say, and many scholars did say, well, Kilo didn't really change anything because for the most part, it reaffirmed the pre-existing view of public use in Supreme Court precedent. But it did actually have a big impact in this sense, that because it was a very closely divided 5-4 decision and very controversial, it shattered the seeming pre-existing consensus under which everybody had assumed, or at least experts had assumed, that we all agreed that a public use is pretty much anything that the government says it is. Before Kilo, people like Richard Epstein and myself, who believed in a narrow approach to public use, we were seen either as people just ignorant of basic constitutional law, perhaps in my case, or in Richard's case as sort of wild-eyed extremists who are out of the legal mainstream. Today, you can't say that anymore. After Kilo, with, for instance, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor writing a strong dissenting opinion, today there's an active debate going on over these issues, and the consensus has clearly been broken. I think it's a good thing. Others might think it's a bad thing, but that clearly has happened. So I'd like to next talk about why the Kilo decision, although it did have the good effect of breaking a harmful consensus, was ultimately wrong. And I'll start out by speaking about it from the perspective of originalism, the idea that we should interpret the Constitution as it was understood at the time that the relevant provisions were enacted. There was only limited discussion of public use in the 1790s in the aftermath of the enactment of the Bill of Rights when the uh, public use clause and the takings clause first made it into the Constitution. But such discussion as we do have strongly suggests that they did not believe that condemnations to transfer property to ordinary private commercial uses are permissible. Indeed, it was repeatedly stated by jurists in that era that these things violated natural law and the natural law basis of property rights, which was very strongly believed uh, by most of the founders. Many of the uh, current originalist scholars believe that when the Bill of Rights is applied against state governments, it should be interpreted not as understood in 1791, but as understood in 1868, when the Bill of Rights first became applicable against state governments as a result of the enactment of the 14th Amendment. And by this period, we actually have a lot more evidence about the understanding of public use. By this time, numerous state Supreme Courts had interpreted 
interpreted the meaning of public use in their state constitutions. Almost every state constitution has a public use clause closely based on the federal one. And while in the 19th century there was disagreement over this, the queer majority of state Supreme Courts by the 1860s and 70s had ruled in favor of the narrow approach to public use. This was also the view taken by most leading legal treatises of the era. In that period, treatises were a much more important source of understanding of the law for legal professionals than they are today. And as I argue in the book, in terms of how the general public might understand public use, if you believe that original meaning should be interpreted as the general public might see it, uh, it's also evident that the narrow view of public use would make more intuitive sense to them uh, than the broad one for quite a number of reasons. Now, of course, I fully recognize not everybody is an originalist. Many people are living constitutionalists. They believe for a variety of reasons that the way we interpret the Constitution should change over time to adjust to new social conditions, new knowledge, and other uh, changes that might arise. In the book, I go through several different leading variants of, leading constitu of living constitution theory and explain why they all cut against uh, Kilo. Here, I'm just going to mention a couple particularly prominent ones. Perhaps the most uh, well-known theory of living constitutionalism is what scholars call representation reinforcement. The idea that judicial review should be used to interpret the Constitution in such a way as to protect people who cannot fend for themselves in the political process, the so-called discrete and insular minorities that the Supreme Court referred to in the famous Caroline Products decision. One might think of racial minorities, religious ones, other groups who can't really fend for themselves effectively. Uh, and I think under this theory, Kilo is actually an extremely strong case, uh, an extremely strong case in the sense that it, the, the law here should have been struck down uh, in that if you look at who is victimized by these sorts of condemnations, it is overwhelmingly people who are poor, politically weak, racial and ethnic minorities. Over the last 50 to 60 years, we have forcibly displaced many hundreds of thousands of people with blight and economic development takings the vast majority of them fall into those categories. Indeed, in one important sense, the people who are victimized by these takings are even more powerless than other discrete and insular minorities than we might think of, because at least in most of those other cases, the people in question still retain the right to vote, and then in the next election, they can vote against the politicians who harm them. If, however, your home is condemned and you end up being forced out of the community entirely, then you probably will not be around at the next election to try to vote the bastards out, so to speak, and punish them at the ballot box. So in that respect, is an even clearer case than many other instances which are more typically cited as examples of the theory. Another well-known current theory of living constitutionalism is the idea of popular constitutionalism. And this is the theory that the Constitution doesn't necessarily belong to judges and other legal elites. It doesn't even necessarily belong to the professors like me. Rather, what the courts should do is they should protect those rights that the American people consider particularly important, especially people who are mobilized in a wide-ranging social movement of some sort that has broad support. Here, too, if you believe in this particular theory, uh, Kiwo turns out to be a particularly uh, bad case and a particularly flawed decision, because in the aftermath of Kiwo, polls showed that over 80% of the public disapproved of the decision. That disapproval continues in more recent polls. The disapproval cuts across 
ideological, partisan, racial, and other lines that normally divide people. Uh, this is a rare instance where the NAACP and Rush Limbaugh are both on the same side. Doesn't happen very often, but it happened here. So when you look at this compared to other popular constitutionalist movements which are typically cited, this one has the broadest support, is broader, for example, than the feminist movement, than the civil rights movement, the gun rights movement, more recently the gay rights movement, and others that are typically cited as examples of situations where the court should be influenced by popular constitutional pressures. Now, I'd like to also briefly talk about a couple of flaws in the Kilo decision, which it cut across different theories of interpretation. One is that there is a deep inherent contradiction in the way that Kilo approaches this constitutional right. They say, on the one hand, you have an individual right under the Fifth Amendment to have your land protected against condemnations that are not for a public use, that it's intended to protect you against abuses by the government. But who gets to decide what a public use is? Well, it's the very government that the right is supposed to protect you against. So there's a deep contradiction here. Uh, you're deferring to the very entity in interpreting the right that the right is supposed to protect you from. And no other right in the Bill of, right is, in the Bill of Rights is treated this way by the Supreme Court. It's kind of like saying we need to have rules to protect chickens from being nabbed from chicken coops. And who are we going to appoint to create those rules? Well, it would be a committee of wolves. This is very much like putting the wolves in charge of the chicken coop, and it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Uh, secondly, uh, the Kilo decision also involves a very serious misinterpretation of precedent. In the majority opinion, Justice Stevens writes that there is a century of precedent supporting the broad definition of public use. And it's true, as I mentioned before, that there are decisions going back to the 1950s. But the numerous cases Stevens cites from the late 19th century and the early 20th century were not actually public use cases at all. They were actually cases under the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, where people were challenging state takings in federal court arguing that they violated due process clause. This is the so-called famous substantive due process of the Wachner era. Now, you might ask, well, why did people use the due process clause when they could have used the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment instead? The answer is that at that time, the court did not think that the Fifth Amendment was incorporated yet against state governments. It thought it only applied to the federal government. So this was the only way that you could have challenged a state taking in federal court at the time. And under the due process clause, the courts were relatively deferential to government, although not as deferential as the Kilo decision is. However, those cases were not actual public use clause decisions under the Fifth Amendment. They were due process clause decisions, and the court in that era uh, distinguished between the two and applied tougher standards when the public use clause was actually at stake in the rare cases where there was a taking by the federal government. To his credit, Justice Stevens has actually admitted that he made this mistake in his opinion in a speech that he gave after he left the court in 2011. He calls it an embarrassing to acknowledge error. You don't see very many prominent Supreme Court decisions where the author of the decision itself says he made a significant mistake, though I should emphasize he still maintains that he got the bottom line decision correct. 
Uh, I'd next like to talk briefly about the uh, on-the-ground problems that these sorts of condemnations cause, particularly the economic development takings at stake in Kilo itself. Uh, one big problem is that if you say you can condemn property and transfer to private individuals for economic development, and then you don't even require them to prove that the supposed development will actually occur, this is an obvious recipe for capture of the political process by powerful interest groups, as indeed to some extent happened in many cases, including in Kilo itself, where although I think the officials who did the taking, they genuinely believed it would serve the public interest, it was also the case that uh, Pfizer incorporated a powerful pharmaceutical manufacturer played an important role in lobbying for the taking and in shaping the plan uh, which led to them. Uh, and this sort of capture occurs quite regularly, and the political process isn't very good at preventing it, for, because for many reasons, it's actually very difficult for voters to monitor these sorts of takings effectively. Now, in fairness, many people argue that there's a genuine economic problem which these sorts of takings solve, the so-called holdout problem. Uh, the idea here is that you might have a really valuable development project, uh, but in order to assemble the land for it, you have to buy out, say, 100 different people, and maybe your project will produce a million dollars of extra value, but you go to the first owner, uh, and he says, I'd be happy to sell to you, but you've got to give me $990,000. Uh, if you don't, uh, then I refuse to sell, and obviously, you could pay him that money, but if you do that, uh, you quickly will end up paying more money for the land than the project is worth. Uh, so the idea is you have to... Come from? I'm going to tell you in a moment. Uh, patience. Uh, asking here. Okay. Uh, all in good time. Uh, so uh, the idea here is that you might end up with a situation like this where a holdout remains and the value of the project is undermined. This is actually a situation in China, but uh, similar problems can occur in the U.S. I think this is, in some instances, a genuine problem. However, it is greatly overblown for two reasons. One is that in real life, these sorts of takings are rarely undertaken based on sophisticated economic calculation about holdouts. They're more often undertaken based on calculations about the relative political power of the entities involved. Secondly, even when there is a genuine holdout problem, the private sector has a number of effective mechanisms for overcoming it. They don't work in every single case, but they're pretty effective and they do deal with the vast majority of cases. I can discuss that in greater detail uh, in the questions if you are interested. Before leaving off the subject of the harm that these takings cause, I would also note that uh, in many instances, because of the perverse incentives created, they actually destroy more value than they create. Uh, if you can say that we condemn for economic development, don't have to prove that development will actually occur, and by the time it does occur, fails to do so, years have passed and public attention has moved on, there's an obvious incentive here to take for projects uh, that destroy value rather than create it. That's what happened in Kilo and in other cases. Uh, I would also like to note the closely related blight condemnations. Uh, blight was not at issue in the Kilo case. There was no claim that the land was blighted. Uh, but in many situations, very similar takings are done 
after land is designated as blighted. And here you have similar problems. These takings often destroy more value than they create, and they particularly victimize the poor and the politically weak. In many ways, blight takings are actually a more serious problem than economic development takings because they're more common. In addition, numerous states have expanded the definition of blight so broadly that almost any area can be declared blighted, including historically such places as downtown Las Vegas and Times Square in New York uh, have been ruled to be blighted in legal decisions under very broad definitions uh, of blight. One of the really interesting things about the Kilo case, which set it aside uh, apart from almost every other modern Supreme Court decision, is the enormous public reaction uh, that was generated. Uh, as I noted earlier, over 80% of the public disapproved of the decision. This disapproval cut across all kinds of racial, ideological, and partisan lines. And as a result of the Kilo decision, uh, you saw this huge political backlash uh, by numerous parts of the population. You can see in this chart, polls say that 81% of the public opposed the decision, and doubt opposition cuts across every line that you can imagine, whether racial, gender, party affiliation, uh, and so forth. In the aftermath, therefore, 45 states passed eminent domain reform laws, which is a record. Not, no decision in all of Supreme Court history has generated so much reactive state legislation. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, much of the legislation that was enacted was relatively ineffective in the sense that it pretended to protect uh, property rights against these sorts of takings, but didn't actually do so. This was particularly true in cases where the legislation was enacted through uh, the ordinary legislative process, where 22 out of 37 states that passed laws that way passed ones that didn't actually protect the property owners in a meaningful way. Uh, there are many different variations of how they did this, but the most common one is to say you can't transfer property through a taking to a private party for economic development, but you can if the land is blighted, and then blight is defined so broadly that virtually any property uh, counts. Any property can be designated as blighted. Uh, now, it's important to recognize, however, that many states did enact strong reform laws, probably about 20 of them, so we are much better off since Kilo than we were before it as a result of this, just not as much better off as it might seem at first sight. Uh, and this raises a number of interesting questions. One is, why was there such a big backlash against Kilo in the first place? After all, as I mentioned before, Kilo didn't change, did not change the existing precedent very much. Uh, secondly, uh, why was so much ineffective reform adopted? Why did many politicians, in effect, flout the will of the overwhelming majority of the public? And third, there is a division between different types of post-QO reform laws. Some are stronger than others. Uh, in particular, uh, those that uh, were adopted through the referendum process, the citizen-initiated referendum. Uh, and there are different reasons for these phenomenon, but the most common one, the one that I think underlies it, is political ignorance. Surveys showed that 87% of the public did not realize either whether their state had passed reforms at all or whether it had passed effective ones. And this, too, cut across different racial, ideological, and party lines. 
Uh, and I think this helps account for all three of our puzzles. First, the reaction to Q occurred in part because beforehand, most people simply didn't know that these sorts of takings were occurring. It took the publicity surrounding the decision to let them know that this is a problem. Second, uh, Ineffective reforms were enacted in large part because politicians recognized uh, that uh, people would not be able to tell the difference between strong reforms and weak ones, uh, and therefore they could pretend to uh, satisfy public sentiment against Kilo while at the same time avoiding riling up interest groups that benefited from the status quo. Uh, finally, uh, the, there is the puzzle of why citizen-initiated referenda were different. It's not because the voters are better informed when they vote in a citizen-initiated referenda. It's rather that there are different incentives. The people who draft these are not legislators who want to run for re-election and satisfy interest groups. They're property rights activists who, generally speaking, genuinely really want to prevent these sorts of takings from happening. The very last thing I'll mention before I stop is that QO also generated a substantial judicial reaction with a number of state Supreme Courts repudiating it as a guide to the interpretation of their state constitutions. This underlies the reality that the seeming consensus over public use was broken by Kilo, and although there's a lot of progress still to be made, on the whole, we are much better off now when there's an active debate on this issue than we were 10 years ago when most people either weren't aware that the problem existed or in the case of experts just believed that we all agreed that the broad definition of public use was correct. Thank you very much, and I very much look forward to discussion. Thanks very much, Ilya. Um, one of the reasons uh, I should mention why Ilya confusion isn't that big a problem is because Ilya Soman and I generally agree on uh, most things. One thing we definitely disagree about is the constitutionality of PowerPoint. As you see, he likes to use it for uh, kitty photos, uh, and I think it's a grave threat to the republic. Speaking of technology, I should mention that those of you, if you want to, the, the, the cell reception in this room is spotty. If you want to get on the Wi-Fi, there's a Cato network, and the password is give me liberty with the first letter of each of those words, give me liberty capitalized. Also, those of you watching uh, our live feed, uh, feel free to tweet about what you're seeing. The hashtag is uh, kilo at 10, K-E-L-O-A-T. Number 10, kilo at 10. Uh, and you can also tweet your questions at me for our Q&A session. My Twitter handle is at iShapiro. And with that, let me introduce uh, our first commenter, Wes Horton, who is a partner at Horton Shields and Knox in Hartford, Connecticut, and has appeared as appellate counsel in hundreds of cases over more than 40 years. From 1997 to 2007, he was the chairman of the Connecticut Bar Association's Professional Ethics Committee. He also wrote the only published books on the Connecticut Constitution and the history of the Connecticut Supreme Court. Uh, very much a nutmeg state man uh, here. Uh, he's been president of the Connecticut Supreme Court Historical Society since its founding uh, in 2008-2009. He was president of the American Council Association, an international legal organization, and has been on panels at conferences in Paris, Warsaw, Brussels, Luxembourg, Geneva, Zagreb, and New Britain. Uh, he represented, <laughs> that's what it says in your bio, I'm just, I'm just going by it. Uh, he represented the city of New London before the Supreme Court in Kilo, which of course raises the question that I hope uh, you'll address, is why do you hate freedom? <laughs> 
Gee, uh, thanks uh, for that, Ilya. I, uh, I was just about to thank uh, the Cato Institute for inviting me into the lion's den, and I see that was the uh, correct uh, statement to make. I do want to compliment uh, uh, Cato for one major thing, uh, seriously, and that is uh, uh, there were approximately 24 uh, amicus briefs against my position in the United States Supreme Court, and Cato's amicus brief was, uh, in my opinion, number one on the list. It was a very, very impressive. There were a number of impressive ones, but that that was, I thought, the most persuasive. I wasn't here at the time, but I'll accept. You'll take you'll take the credit. Uh, I also want to uh, publicly uh, uh, acknowledge. Uh, Ilya Soman, and especially his uh, wife, Allison. Uh, I sort of invited myself to their house last night for dinner. And uh, I, I will say this, if any of you get a chance to go, Alice, Allison is a wonderful cook. And thank you very much uh, for having me at your house last night. Uh, uh, Ilya has made about 15 major points. Uh, and I want to focus what I think is the most important one, uh, which has to do with drawing a bright line. Let me, uh, because I think that is the most important thing he is saying. His book is saying, draw a bright line at uh, private economic development plans. That that is absolutely off limits. That's the bright line. After all, the Kelo decision itself was specifically about whether a private economic plan can be a public use, and they said yes. And he's saying uh, that's a bad idea, that's not where the line should be. The line should be drawn there, and it should be on the no-go side. If it's on the other side, it's a go, like an interstate highway or a post office or something. And he gives all these reasons for why uh, we should have this bright line. There, now, there are two types of people in the world, and I suspect out in the audience. There are the bright line people who want to make it easy for judges to decide cases. And therefore, you can have injustice on both sides of the line whenever you draw. But it, it makes it easy to make a decision. And then there are the people, and I have fallen into this category throughout my legal career uh, whenever I can. And that's uh, uh, justice isn't that easy. We should force judges to make hard decisions in close cases and not simply to come up with a bright line because a bright line means injustice on both sides. So you, you need to, you, and so I think the bright line that he is drawing is a bad thing. And you'll notice I was listening to uh, Professor Epstein very closely. I didn't hear him draw a bright line at economic development. He was criticizing uh, the Kelo plan uh, itself, but I didn't see him drawing any line, and I'd like to talk about why you shouldn't do that. And let me give you an example that uh, I argued a case to the Connecticut Supreme Court uh, two months ago on free speech. And the, I'm representing an employee who was disciplined and eventually fired because he made a speech uh, that happened to be within his job description. He wasn't speaking on behalf of the company, but it was within his job description. There's a United States Supreme Court case that says if you speak as an employee in an area that's within your job description, you have no First Amendment right whatsoever, a bright line. And I argued to the United States Supreme Court, uh, Connecticut Supreme Court, that they should reject that. You should look more closely. Was it disruptive? You know, a balancing test. And I argued to the Connecticut Supreme Court, under the Connecticut Constitution, you should have a balancing test. That strikes me as exactly what you should be doing in this area. And let me explain why 
you know, this bright line he comes up with is a very bad idea. Uh, take interstate highways. He would clearly agree, unless he's an anarchist, I guess, that the government has the power to uh, condemn land for an interstate highway. Uh, right? It would, for a public, it's a public Sure, and there are lots of other problems with it, and, uh, and they're the same problems you have with economic development. And I'll give you an example. In Connecticut, if you uh, uh, go on Interstate 84 or Interstate 91, you will see any number of places where there's, a, there's an exit ramp or there's a, there's a bridge going over the highway to nowhere in both cases. Well, that's because in the 1960s, an enthusiastic federal or state government was condemning land right and left to increase the interstate state uh, highway system uh, that never happened. In addition, uh, you have an exit ramp in Hartford that was specifically for the benefit of a department store because the, uh, the exit ramp went right, uh, plopped everybody right at this department store. And that was the worst, everybody at the time said this is the worst place it should be, it should be somewhere else. But uh, the point is that the problems he sees with condemnation can, uh, uh, you know, concerning economic development plans, can apply to everything. You want to, uh, uh, you want to uh, have a condemnation for a post office today. Well, post offices are going to be obsolete 10 years from now, <laughs> probably. Uh, they're probably going to be a fossil, but is there going to be any uh, look in to see whether they're actually going to build the interstate highway or build the uh, post office? No. There's no discussion of that. Uh, that's, a, that's a public use without any question whatsoever. Uh, certainly, uh, uh, railroads could not have been bought, uh, 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 railroad tracks could not have been laid across the United States. Perhaps some of the property uh, was, was open land, but there had been some areas where you just had to go through there, and there had to have been some of those places where the person that didn't want uh, that was holding out was not a strategic holdout. It was somebody like Mrs. Kilo. I don't want to sell at any price. Uh, and yet uh, uh, railroads are for a profit, after all, and, and, but they have to take all comers. Well, let's look at the, um, let's look at the plan that uh, uh, we have with New London. Number one, we have uh, a hotel. Uh, that was in the plan. Now, a hotel, uh, I, uh, the Cato Institute, thank you very much, put me up at this wonderful hotel next door, the Henley Arms, and if I just walked in off the street and they had a room, they'd have to give it to me. If they didn't, I assume I'd have some cause of action under District of Columbia law. Uh, and uh, uh, also, there's a, there's a housing plan. Now, there are housing authorities that governments have. Usually, they're for poorer people, but it could be for middle-class people, too. Uh, so where are you drawing the line? Uh, the, uh, the congressman, in his very vigorous defense of property rights, talked about fracking and, and economic development that fracking was bringing uh, or to uh, northern Pennsylvania that it wasn't bringing to uh, southern uh, New York in his district. Well, that's what the New London plan was. Now, uh, he can pick away, and Professor Epstein can pick away at, the, at various things of the plan, which social scientists, in my view, would call anecdotes. They don't affect the general thesis of having uh, a, a broad a, a red line. Uh, 
for example, and I'm sure Scott will be the first to tell you that if you didn't have the Italian Dramatic Club that was left off, if Mrs. Kilo, in fact, was right smack dab in the middle like that uh, Chinese uh, photo, uh, if uh, you didn't have Pfizer Corporation anywhere in sight, uh, if, if you take out all those anecdotes about our particular thing, would Scott's client and Scott therefore change their mind? Okay, that's okay. Of course not. Uh, you know, so even if you take out all the things that are supposedly defects, uh, in the New London plan itself, they still would be opposed to it because they draw a red line. And let me tell you, if you take out those things, let's look at what we're talking about. You have a situation where, say, a large corporation is willing to come in to a depressed community. And no, no one doubts that it's a depressed community. You've got the only, uh, it's a very small town. It's five uh, square miles. And this is about the only area that can be developed uh, and, and take that as, as a given. Maybe you can pick away at it, but I'm giving you a hypothetical case. Uh, you have an area where um, a corporation says, yeah, we'll come into your city and pump lots of uh, economic revitalization into your very poor city, but uh, this is the area that needs to be developed, and we're not coming in the way it is now. Um, and are you going to say, under his book, this is a bright line. It's easy for the judge to decide. You don't have to consider the, whether in this particular case the benefits far outweigh the losses uh, to the uh, individual property owners. Why, do you, why don't you want to force the judges to do their job? Now, it's true that it's difficult to do that. And he certainly points out the, the reasons why it's difficult for ju uh, judges to dig out, for example, pretext, to deliver, uh, uh, dig out favoritism, and uh, make sure the public really knew what was going on. Sure, those are all. But those are things you could say about an interstate highway. It's the same thing. Uh, so. I think that, uh, and I think as I read what Professor Epstein was saying, if you show me the right conditions that this plan is actually going to work, that it's actually going to revitalize the city, and that this revitalization uh, well outweighs uh, the losses because you're taking somebody's property, I don't see why that should be automatically on the bad side of the line, and I don't think Professor Epstein would either. So the general point I want to make is that maybe you need to have a gradation, uh, you, know, a, uh, uh, you know, a rule of reason, a, a rule that judges have difficulty applying but leads to justice in individual cases rather than just saying, no, you can't do it, or yes, you can do it. So for example, on, on the obviously no-go side, uh, you, you have, uh, there's actually a case the Second Circuit decided that uh, Ilya and I agree on that uh, uh, a condemnation uh, by a, uh, of, of a CVS for a Walgreen. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know how that was, I, I must confess, I'm, I'm in agreement with him. I, I don't know how that, that made it through. Uh, you know, or the, uh, the mayor's condemning it for his girlfriend. I mean, there are, there are extreme, uh, on the very extreme side, and then on the other side, it's a clear case uh, you know, they're actually going to build the interstate highway, or it's for a military facility that there's no question they're going to build. You know, and, and then maybe you need a sliding scale going from one extreme to the other, 
And the closer you get to uh, the no-go side, uh, the more you need to show that it's actually going to work, uh, the, uh, the more you've tr got to try to do it without using the condemnation powers. Uh, you know, and, and he shows how you can do that in many cases, and as does Professor Epstein. Uh, that strikes me as justice and not simply saying, as unfortunately I think his book says, uh, you draw a red line right down the middle, this is okay and that's okay. So my view is uh, uh, get rid of red lines, don't blame Kilo for this. All Kilo said is itself, is holding, is that economic development uh, uh, by private developers can be uh, a public use. That's the only holding it did, it, and it said lots of things that can apply, uh, that, are, that you should applaud, that can apply to all sorts of condemnations. You know, uh, it didn't go down the road that Berman went down of uh, you can do anything you want, basically. It put some uh, provisions, uh, restrictions on, on condemnations, and Ilya has talked to you about some of them. But the point is that's not, that's not uh, Kilo's fault. Kilo was actually pulling back, to some extent, the powers of condemnation. The only thing where they expanded it on is they included in the group of permissible ones private economic development plans. And all I'm saying is adding that is, is, is not something on which you should be drawing the line on. I would focus your attention as libertarians on the general concept of condemnation and not focus specifically on development, uh, economic development plans, but because some of them are good and some of them are bad. And just like condemning highways, some of them are good and some of them are bad. Talk about it as a general concept. Don't pick on the specific situation in Kilo. Thank you very much. Thanks for that, Wes. Um, since you're such an expert on all things Connecticut, uh, I thought I'd uh, ask one little bit of trivia. I wonder if you, if you know this, and since you talked about uh, interstates in Connecticut as well. Uh, do you know what the uh, biggest town in America without an interstate exit is? Is it in Connecticut? It's Bristol, Connecticut, which is the home of ESPN. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if that's on purpose or that they located there on purpose or they purposely you know, don't want the traffic, but uh, there, there you go. Thank you. I appreciate that. Scott Bullock joined the Institute for Justice at its founding in 1991 and now serves as a senior attorney focusing on property rights and economic liberty. He argued Kilo uh, for the good guys uh, and was co-counsel in the uh, first state Supreme Court victory after Kilo, where the Ohio Supreme Court unanimously struck down the use of eminent domain for private development. Some of his other successes include spearheading the litigation that saved a beachfront neighborhood in Long Branch, New Jersey, a small record label in Nashville, and private homes in Canton, Mississippi. Following the Kilo decision, he drafted legislation and testified before numerous committees when legislatures began reforming abusive eminent domain laws. Bullock also directs the Institute's campaign against civil forfeiture, a nationwide effort to challenge the ability of governments to take property from owners without a criminal conviction. This coming January, uh, Scott will succeed Chip Miller as IJ's president. And all of this success can, of course, be attributed to Scott's having been Roger Pallon's first intern at Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies. Scott. 
Thank you so much, Ilya. Uh, my name obviously is not Ilya, but I happen to agree with most of the things that is in Ilya Soman's uh, book. Uh, it is a wonderful uh, book. I want to talk a little bit about some of the, the, the highlights, I think, in the book, maybe uh, possible um, areas of, uh, of, of disagreement, and then also props here. Uh, talk about some of the things that Wes mentioned uh, uh, as well uh, in his remarks. Uh, one of the things that I think Ilya's book does so effectively, and something that is quite rare for, frankly, a more academically oriented book, is that Ilya actually went out and spoke to real people. He interviewed the clients. He interviewed the people on the other uh, side of the, uh, of the dispute as well, and he told their stories. And those stories are incredibly powerful. They made an impact, obviously, with members of the public in the Kilo uh, backlash uh, that we saw. I think it's fair to say it also made an impact on the court as well. Justice O'Connor, in particular, told and uh, the stories of some of the folks that lived in the Fort Trumbull neighborhood. And those stories are important, especially for showing the importance of private property rights and why we have a takings clause in the first instance. Suzette Kilo, the named plaintiff in the case, she had just bought her home about a year before the takings commenced in New London. It was the first piece of property she had ever owned in her entire life. That place was incredibly important for her. It was something where she was really going to start a new chapter in her life, and she poured her love and her labor into that property. She wasn't there, but for about a year, she got a knock on the door uh, telling her that the New London Development Corporation was, going, was interested in purchasing her home for a new development project, and if she did not sell, it would be taken through eminent domain. Right up the street from her was a woman by the name of Wilhelmina Derry, who was in her 80s, who was born in the home on East Street in Fort Trumbull in 1918, had never lived anywhere else. Her family was right next door to her, and she wanted to live out her remaining days in this home. Somebody who had a very deep attachment to the property, uh, as contrasted to Suzette, who was a newcomer, but both of them valued home ownership and property ownership to such an incredible degree. And that is recognized in the Constitution's protection for private property rights in numerous provisions of it. The takings clause just simply does not say, nor shall private property be taken without just compensation. It could just be that if the government wants to take your property, they pay you for it. But there's an added level of protection that was at the heart of the Kelo case is that it can only be taken for a public use because of how important uh, property ownership is to people like uh, Suzette Kelo, Wilhelmina Derry, and to so many others uh, throughout, throughout the country. You know, one of the things that happened when we got involved in, in the Kelo case is that Many critics claimed that the only real reason why uh, there was so much controversy about this was because IJ had this incredible 
public relations machine and that we steamrolled the city of New London in getting the word out and only if the public would have known all the great benefits that would have, uh, would have flowed from this project, it would have been a different story. Well, obviously, uh, we make no secret about our ability to uh, talk about our cases, to get the word out about uh, our cases. But I just simply think that that is not true. People saw this case as an injustice. Uh, and they did so for a couple of reasons. One is that they looked at Suzette Kilo's little pink house and said, that's the house I grew up in, or that's the house I would like to own someday. That's the house that my family members live in. It really, this case hit home in a way that very few, literally, that very few constitutional decisions uh, really, uh, really do. The other rap that people said uh, against the case is that, well, what's the big difference between uh, taking a home for a new private development project or taking a home for a road or a reservoir or, or some other type of traditional public use? Well, there's a huge de uh, degree of difference between the two, and I think people instantly got that. It's one thing, yes, it can be difficult uh, to give up your home for a public works project, but for a government to tell you that we are going to take your home or your business and we're going to hand it over to another private party, essentially somebody who's just like you, except that they happen to have more money than you do. And we think that these new owners will provide more tax revenue and benefit the community more than what you are doing. That is deeply offensive to a vast majority of individuals. And I think it's one of the reasons why people were so shocked when the court upheld these types of takings to take property as what was at the heart of the Kelo case from one private owner and hand it over to another private party in the hope that that new private party would put the, the, the property to higher and better use. The Constitution says that private property shall only be taken for public use, not private use, and yet that is what the court signed off on in this case. Uh, Kilo also today remains a very uh, powerful teaching tool. I've heard over and over again from law students that have come into our programs uh, that it is talked about in law school. It is one that resonates deeply uh, with um, students and with members of the public, and it provides such a great launching point for discussions about some of the very fundamental notions of our Constitution. Uh, it is something that uh, I, folks um, really want to talk about. It raises issues of the limits on government power uh, and uh, the proper role of um, urban planning, the rights of the individual versus, versus the community. Let me talk just real briefly about some other points that Wes made and then um, a, few other, uh, a few other things as well. Wes talked about wanting to get away from the bright line in constitutional uh, law. Well, I obviously disagree with that. And I think the takings clause is one of those areas where you actually have a fairly bright line. It is 
one of those provisions of the Constitution has a lot more substantive meaning than, and a lot more obvious meanings than many other aspects of the Constitution. For instance, what does due process mean? What is an unreasonable search and seizure? Public use actually has some real meaning, and Justice Thomas's dissent in the Kelo case talked about the history and the meaning of public use, and it went through, obviously, public ownership of property, and then also things like railroads and utilities where people have an equal right of access to the property through things like common carriers. Uh, those are pretty easily defined. And it's pretty clear that a road, a public road, is a public use. Costco is not a public use. That a reservoir is a public use, but a lifestyle center with retail stores and condominiums up above is a private use. So I would say that in most of these cases, obviously there's going to be a couple of tough calls on the margins about this, but there is real substantive meaning to what public use is and that you, you can quite clearly draw these lines. And if you don't draw these bright lines, you get into a situation where you have a vision of eminent domain without really any meaningful limits whatsoever. And that is what happened uh, is an example in the Kelo case itself, uh, where obviously Pfizer was directing a lot of the project. There was a quid pro quo, really, where part of the agreement of Pfizer coming to New London was to revitalize the Fort Trumbull neighborhood. But obviously, folks in the city council thought they were doing this to benefit the community. And this is always going to be the case where you think that the so-called trickle-down effects of private economic development in the form of higher tax revenue and more jobs, if that is a public use, then obviously you want to give every benefit possible to the private company that is coming in. You want to cater to their wishes. You want to mold the development plan to what they want. New London had the approach of, a, of what is good for Pfizer is good for New London, and it would be very hard to separate those two out, even in instances like Wes was referring to, where you have a one-to-one -one condemnation of property. Uh, the city could very easily claim, well, this new owner that we're giving uh, to, whether it's the Walgreen uh, for the other, um, uh, for the other um, uh, drug store, or a case like the 99-cent store case from California, where they were going to give a 99-cent store uh, for Costco, well, why did they want to do this? Well, because Costco was the largest taxpayer within the city of Lancaster, California. So that is something where if you do not have that bright line saying that takings for uh, a pure economic development are unconstitutional, you're really embracing a vision of eminent domain without really any sort of limitation uh, whatsoever. If you don't have the bright line, there is a doctrine, and I will close, I will close with this. Um, that comes into play, that should have come into play, and to a certain extent did in, in the, in the Aquilo decision, uh, and one that we would like to see revitalized in public, uh, in, uh, in eminent domain law, and that is the doctrine of necessity. 
that the government should be required to show, whether it's in private takings or in public use takings, that the takings are actually necessary to accomplish the public, uh, the public use. We were able to demonstrate that in the New London case. We proved that all of the development that uh, New London wanted to do could have occurred without taking any of the homes. Ilya and uh, uh, Professor Epstein mentioned the Italian Dramatic Club, which was just a naked example of political preference and how this could have really been done. Every, all the properties had to go except one politically popular private social men's club in the, in the redevelopment plan was miraculously saved. You know, Fort Trumbull uh, was originally an, a largely Italian neighborhood. A lot of the people that we represented still had that, had that background. As Matt Derry, one of our clients, quipped, uh, the New, New London's attitude was, the Italian Dramatic Club can stay, just all the Italians have to go. That was his uh, take on it. And that is absolutely uh, uh, the case. And it shows why, in so, in so many instances, that development projects can occur without uh, taking the, the land of the folks that truly, that truly want to stay. Uh, this happens throughout the country. If we had judges that really took the doctrine of necessity seriously and looked at this, rather than just rubber stamping whatever the government uh, wants to do in this area, like they had done for years on the public use question, you would see a reigning in not only of some of the abuses in private condemnations, but in public use uh, condemnations as well. We just close by saying that the real legacy of the Kelo case, and I think it is fair to say, and we hope, and one of the things we are working for is that ultimately Kelo will be overturned. But the real legacy for the property owners in New London is that even though they lost their homes, they led an effort, and their fight was not in vain. It was an effort that fundamentally transformed the law in this country, attitudes about private property ownership, and it's allowed so many other folks that for years had fought these, a really a hopeless battle against these types of takings to really uh, give them some strength and support uh, to fight uh, to fight these sorts of condemnations, and, and we hope that that will continue, and we at the Institute for Justice and other folks will make sure that private property rights are restored and these types of unconstitutional takings are stopped. Thank you. Before we turn to questions, I want to give uh, Professor Soman a few minutes to respond to the comments. Thank you very much. Uh, I'd like to thank Scott and Wes for their very insightful presentations. Uh, I think in my very brief uh, time to respond, I just want to focus on what I think is the big point in dispute, which is should we have a bright line rule or not? But before doing that, I'd like to note that the approach that I think I hear Wes advocating is actually quite different from the one that the majority took in Kilo, they did not simply say that economic development uh, by private parties can be a public use. They also said that at least if there is a plan, uh, then the courts are not supposed to second guess that plan. That is, 
they're not supposed to do the very hard work that Wes says that they should be doing. They're not supposed to look to see is it a good plan? Is there a real holdout problem? Will economic development really be produced? So long as there's a plan, uh, the majority says the court shouldn't second guess the plan, except maybe in a few very unusual circumstances that we can talk about in question for instance, I do cover them uh, in the book. Uh, now, at one level, uh, it's hard to oppose something that uh, where sort of a person says, let's have the good economic development takings, but not the bad ones. The ones that really benefit the community, let's have them. The ones that cause not harm, let's prevent them. And the same thing, perhaps, with roads and bridges. Let's have the good roads and bridges, but not the bad ones. Just why you could also say, uh, let's have the good political speech, but not the bad political speech. Let's have good, accurate, thoughtful criticisms of politicians and public policies, but not bad and misleading ones. Uh, so I'm not a person who believes that bright line rules are always the right approach in every area of constitutional law, but I do think they're the right approach in this area. One reason is that if you're a textualist or an originalist, it doesn't seem like the public use clause distinguishes between sort of good programs and bad ones or ones that produce net benefits versus net harms. It distinguishes between public uses and non-public uses, and for reason I've suggested historically, uh, a public use uh, was one that fit the narrow definition, which also fits our intuitive linguistic notion of what a public use is. That doesn't mean that there won't be some public uses that are bad or harmful. There clearly are, uh, but that's where the text and the original meaning, I think, draw the line. But even from a non-textualist point of view, uh, I'm very skeptical that what we want to do is weave up to judges the decision of, is this a good project or not? Is it a net benefit or a net harm? This is true for a couple reasons. One is, I'm very skeptical that judges can actually do a good job of predicting which projects will be harmful, which ones will be beneficial, even with people with great expertise in this area of law and policy have trouble doing that. Most judges are not expert in this area. And this assumes implicitly that the judges will be trying to make an objective, fair effort to make this determination. I think many judges would, but political ideology also influences the judges. And there's a very strong ideology that is receding somewhat, but it's still there of a sense that, well, if it's economic stuff, then courts shouldn't intervene there. They should give the government the benefit of the doubt, and judges inclined in that direction, as many still are, would tend to do that if you give them this discretionary uh, authority. Moreover, uh, Wes says, well, what about the genuinely beneficial project, the one that will really help uh, the public? Uh, I think if it's a private development project, developers have good ways of overcoming holdouts in many cases that don't require condemnation. I go through several in the book. One is secret assembly, where your only opportunity to be a holdout arises if, is if you know there's a big assembly project going on that you can block and try to extract some more money. But what developers do is they start buying land, but they don't tell the people what they're buying it for. You might say, this will never work. The news will get out. It'll leak. But historically, it has actually worked pretty well. For example, this is the way that Disney has assembled the land to build Disney world in Florida. There are many other similar examples. And this also provides an important contrast with public projects for roads and the like, because the government, we wouldn't want them to operate in secrecy. We would want public debate about whether the money for the road should actually be spent. And even if they could operate, if, even if we would want them to operate in secrecy, uh, there's a lot of evidence suggesting government is actually bad at doing that. They can't even prevent national security secrets from leaking, as we saw with Edward Snowden. So it seems unlikely they could prevent road secrets from leaking, so to speak. So I think this is actually a meaningful distinction. Uh, lastly, uh, 
Lastly, I should emphasize, as I actually do at some length in the book, that even genuine public use takings can be harmful. They can be unjust in various cases. Uh, I think in the ideal constitution, we would actually have tighter constraints in those sorts of takings than we do on our own. Uh, but the fact that the constitution is not ideal should not prevent us from enforcing the good things that it does already have in it. And the things that it doesn't cover, we can try to work on them in other ways. Uh, and in the book, I talk about things that might be done to deal with genuine public use takings, which nonetheless are problematic in various ways. And I'm happy to talk about that in questions. And with that, uh, you've been waiting very patiently. And we look forward to, uh, to your questions or for me or for others. What, Wes, Wes, one, one quick uh, response to the response. I just, yeah, that's, uh, sure. I just want to say, uh, if you've been listening closely to what I said about uh, a line, I'm actually more libertarian than he is if you're on the good side of the line. And try, I mean, he focuses only on economic development, and therefore he's more libertarian than I am on that subject. But when you get on the other side, you know, never mind uh, uh, interstate highways. Uh, what about a sports stadium that's owned by the, by the city? Uh, you know, uh, as far as he's concerned, that gets a, red uh, gets a green light. Uh, if it's privately owned, maybe it doesn't. You know, in, in the New London case, it wasn't a private developer that owned it. It was, uh, it was, an, it was, um, it was a private nonprofit organization that was an agent of the city. Now, suppose the city had an agency itself that uh, was, was clearly a, a public agency on the subject. You know, I think that you should, as libertarians, focus on all condemnations and ask the courts to look at all condemnations with a, uh, a more jaundiced eye. And you can get some language from Kilo that says you can do that. I mean, you ought to be trying to expand some of the good language in Kilo uh, concerning other things, a sports stadium that is a boondoggle. Uh, and he's having you focus only on one aspect of the problem and saying absolutely not under any circumstances. That's why I think the, the, the broad, uh, this uh, actual line that he wants to draw is actually less amenable uh, to your cause for economic freedom than mine. Ilya, if the city of New London Sports Authority decided to build New London Stadium, would that analysis be different? So if it was a publicly owned stadium, it would be for a public use. As I said before, it would be a bad public use, but not one forbidden by the Constitution. I think as a practical matter, it's very unlikely the courts would rule otherwise. That said, in the book, I do actually discuss sports stadium taking extensively, and I also discuss situations like the one where he mentioned where, uh, he mentioned earlier, where uh, you have a case where the government says they're going to build a road, but it won't actually be built and the like. I think uh, even for someone that's a genuine public use, they do have to prove necessity and they do have to prove that the that the use will actually be built so I think as a practical matter for the foreseeable future there's no chance the courts are going to say it's not a public use even if it is a government-owned infrastructure facility uh, that's something that maybe someday we can have a constitutional amendment to deal with it or do it in other ways but uh, the possibility the reality that there are genuine public use takings which are harmful should not blind us to or should not prevent us from uh, dealing with the parts that the Constitution does cover and that we can prevent. So more could be said by both me and Wes, but I think uh, we, we should let the, the, uh, the general public have their say. <laughs> just, uh, just, just real quick, I, I have to say something about this, because I'm 
absolutely in favor of having greater scrutiny of traditional public use takings uh, as well. That's one of the messages I was hoping to convey in my remarks. Uh, in the New London situation, uh, yes, the, a supposedly nonprofit uh, a corporation was going to own the land, but it was going to lease it to a private party for $1 a year for 99 years. That was going to be with the terms if the developer ever actually showed up, and the developer, in fact, as we all know, did not show up. And there's a whole body of law that actually addresses these very questions as to what constitutes a real public use, including in the area of stadiums uh, uh, as well, where if it is a, uh, there was a case in Massachusetts where the city built a stadium that was so obviously for the benefit of one particular team that the court struck it down and said that this was just a private taking. Uh, and so there are methods to look to see whether, what, uh, uh, whether this is for a true public use or if it is just really a ruse for um, the takings uh, uh, for uh, just the, the benefit of one private party. And, uh, and that doctrine should be strengthened. And one of the reasons why we've gotten away from that is because courts have abdicated their role in reviewing these types of condemnations, both obviously for private development, but also for public use as well. It's the whole uh, process we've seen really since the New Deal era. Courts used to take seriously the doctrine of necessity, where you utility who had given condemnation power was a common carrier, was a public use, came in and said, we need a 100-foot easement for our line. And the property owner said, you don't need a 100-foot easement. You need a 50-foot easement. And a court would hear that case. Both sides would present evidence. Sometimes the utility would win. Sometimes the property owner would win. But there was actual engagement on this issue. And uh, the problem in these takings is that the judges uh, over the past several decades have just said, who are we to make these types of determinations? We will just rubber stamp whatever the government wants to do. Necessity is meaningless in the same way that for so many years public use had been meaningless. We're out of that game. And it's led to, obviously, abuses for private condemnations, but also abuses for traditional public uses uh, then as well. All right, let's turn to your questions. Please wait for the microphone, uh, identify yourself and any affiliation, and actually ask a question rather than making a statement. <laughs> the lady in the third row there. And you can, those of you following along on the live stream, please feel free to tweet at me, at iShapiro. Yeah, I'm Rosalind Lacey McLennan. I'm a theater reviewer for dctheaterscene.com. I have one, I'm just gonna, I have one basic question. What is it going to take to overturn Kilo? <clears throat> when will it happen, and can it happen? There's recently a play about Antonin Scalia, the originalist at Arena Stage, uh, in which Doma was featured, because it's more theatrically appealing, and Kilo was ignored. Antonin Scalia is on record for saying, in his opinion, that uh, Kilo is one of the worst cases ever decided, and it should be overturned. What is it going to take? And I and hope that appeared in your review of the uh, production. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this is actually a question I address in the conclusion of the book, uh, and I think 
sort of the trivial answer is what it takes is a new case to come up to the Supreme Court and for them to overrule it. Slightly more sophisticated answer is that this case actually well fits the types of cases that historically are vulnerable to overruling. Social science data shows that close 5-4 decisions more likely to be overruled than more lopsided ones. It also shows that decisions are very controversial are more likely to be overruled. Obviously, there was a lot of controversy over this decision. Also, decision to draw an adverse public reaction. In addition, the court has actually laid out some formal criteria. Uh, if you like, these are precedents about overruling precedent, where they say these are the rules that we follow and we decide whether a precedent should be overruled or not. And in Kilo, fits those rules pretty well. One of those criteria is, in fact, uh, whether the reasoning of the original decision has been subject to a great deal of extensive and continuing criticism. Clearly, it has. Another is uh, whether there has been uh, another uh, is uh, whether the original reasoning has been flawed in various ways. Here, even the author of the original opinion, Stevens, Justice Stevens, admits that he made a significant error. He still thinks he got the bottom line right, but it's noticeable that he admitted the error. Uh, and also the fact that this decision has been greeted with a hostile reaction in so many quarters makes him more likely to be overruled. Uh, finally, there is an issue left open by Kilo where they say in general, a public use is pretty much anything the government says it is, unless the taking is pretextual. That is, unless the official rationale, whether it's economic development or something else, is just a pretext for a scheme to benefit a private party. Uh, what is a pretext? What a court doesn't actually give us a lot to go on. And in the lower courts, there's now five different schools of thought on what counts as a pretextual taking. There's a big mess in this area of law. And this is a way that this issue could get back to the Supreme Court. And if it gets back, that would be an opportunity to ask for it to be overruled. Finally, there is this. Uh, historically, uh, constitutional rights only really get strong protection or judiciary if there is a bipartisan cross-ideological agreement that they should. Here, in the federal judiciary and in my corner of the world, the legal academy, we still have a division between right and left. The left tends to be in favor of Kilo, the right tends to be opposed to it, but outside those two areas, in state courts, uh, in uh, the general public, in uh, various groups, uh, activist groups, there's actually a lot of hostility to Kilo on the left as well. Uh, and I think it's possible that those attitudes will seep into at least some left of center federal judges, and that could lead the federal judiciary in time to take a different view of Kilo. So I'm not predicting it definitely will be overruled, it could be maintained, or it could only just be limited as opposed to overruled outright. But I think there's a better chance that this will be overruled uh, than most other Supreme Court decisions. And if it does happen, I would guess it would happen sometime in the next 10 to 20 years or so. I have a question from Twitter from Mario Zuniga, who is a Peruvian lawyer and a content director of Contribuyentes por Respeto, which is a classical liberal think tank in Peru. And he asks, is the definition of public use tied to the economic definition of public good, uh, that is, high exclusion costs, and should it be? Uh, so both in the current doctrine and in the history and original meaning, it is not tied to the economic definition of public good. Some scholars, uh, including to some degree Richard Epstein, have proposed that it should be. Uh, I think at least in terms of history and original meaning, there's not a lot of support for this. Moreover, as I said earlier, uh, I'm skeptical that real world judges will do a good job of telling the difference between 
actual public goods and mere assertions of a public good, whether it be public good in a sense of public benefit or public good in a strict economic sense where it's some sort of collective benefit that cannot be created by individual private action but can only be created by some sort of centralized action. Fourth row. Eyal Moses, no affiliation. Um, I got the impression from reading the news stories on the case that the case also very much violated the just compensation clause. That in the end, Kilo and the other homeowners got so little for, got paid so little for their homes that it very clearly was not just compensation. So I would ask all panelists to comment on whether factually my impression is correct. And I would specifically ask Scott Bullock, was there any possibility after losing the, ca the case on the uh, public use clause to continue litigating it on the just compensation clause? Yeah, it's not true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so um, yes, because the, uh, the case uh, came out against them on, on uh, the public use issue, there was still the remaining issue of just compensation. I would say uh, that in the earlier stages of this litigation, before um, the controversy erupted, before uh, we got involved, the numbers were appallingly low that they were offering for the property owners, and that's true in a vast majority of uh, these, these cases. Just compensation is not what it would take for you to move, uh, for you to find a comparable piece of property uh, in another area of town. It is simply the fair market value of the property in its current use. And that's something that actually even bothered a lot of members of the Supreme Court in that you only got the value of the property under its current use, and then if the property is turned into commercial uh, uh, development, it's rezoned, the value of the property skyrockets, and all the new increase in that value goes to the new owners of, of the property. What happened in Kilo is because it became such a controversial case, such a nationally known case, the governor stepped in to try to work out some type of agreement. The city refused to let the property owners stay, even though that's really what they wanted to do. They weren't interested in selling. They would really uh, want to stay there regardless of, of more money being offered to them. The city refused to do that in a typically arrogant um, uh, way that they had done throughout this entire case. But the property owners, as a result of that controversy, were compensated to a much greater degree than they would have if it was just a garden variety eminent domain case where property owners are routinely undercompensated for their property, which is yet another problem of having takings for private use. Uh, Scott gave a very long answer to your question. The answer to your question is they were paid just compensation. <laughs> Another question from Twitter, uh, from Clifford Bob, who's a political science professor at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. And he asks, what was the 1954 case? I take it that was Midkiff. Why no, was there, no? No, Berman. Berman, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, why was there no outcry then? Yeah, so 
in my view, after 10 years or more of research and stuff, the real culprit in this area is more the Berman case than the Kelo case. Mm. Berman versus Parker was the 1954 case where the Supreme Court first said that a public use is pretty much anything the government says it is. Uh, it involved an urban renewal taking in Washington, D.C. that was part of a project that forcibly displaced some 5,000 people, almost all of them poor African Americans, uh, and it was actually one of many projects of this type during this era. Uh, in the end, as a result of this decision and state court decisions like it, many hundreds of thousands of people were forcibly displaced, most of them poor minorities. You might ask, well, why was there no outcry? After all, ironically, the court that decided Berman had just a few months earlier decided Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, I think there wasn't an outcry for two reasons. One is this was the era during which the sort of post-New Deal view, uh, the government planning is a good thing and can solve our social problems. That view was at its height, both among the political and legal elite and even in the general public. So the analogy was often made in this era is that if you're sick, uh, you want to call a doctor to use his expertise to cure you of your disease. And sometimes he has to cut out some disease tissue, like an ulcer or something. And that's something we got to do. Similarly, if you want to solve social problems like blight, uh, urban decay, and so forth, poverty, you, what you want to do is call in the experts to perform operations on that. Uh, you call in expert urban planners, uh, and you can solve your problems by cutting out social ulcers, which in this case included neighborhoods where hundreds of thousands of people lived. Uh, and while in some cases racism probably underlay some of this, many people, including I think the Justice Supreme Court, who in this era were mostly racial liberals, they genuinely thought that by uh, doing these projects where you forcibly move these people out in the long run, they thought we're actually doing them a favor. We're moving them out of these horrible dilapidated neighborhoods or making their lives better. That's not what actually happened. In the end, it made things worse and caused all sorts of problems, but that was the attitude that was dominant at the time, and it took a long time before it started to be seriously challenged. Uh, I want to say something briefly. I completely agree with them that if there's a culprit, the culprit is the Berman case in 1954, not the Kelo case. And you're, you're looking at the wrong case. The, uh, th there's only one aspect in which Kelo expanded the law, uh, government power, and that has to do with economic development plans. On the other hand, it didn't use a lot of the broad language that Berman used. Three things, and Ilya mentioned in his book. Number one is it doesn't have that broad rational basis test. It's nowhere in the Kelo decision. Number two, it talks about the importance of a comprehensive plan. And number three, it talks about the possibility of, pre of proving pretext. None of those can be found in the Berman case. So rather than spending your time fo harping on the Kelo's allowance of economic development plans, you should be trying to expand the language that Kelo gave that was good about restricting Berman. That's where you should be putting your focus, not on trying to overrule Kelo. I'm happy to overrule lots of Supreme Court cases, and so I'm afraid- In the book, I explicitly advocate overruling both Berman and Kelo, <laughs> uh, but it should be noted that Kelo, while it does doesn't use the rational base language. It does say not only 
the <laughs> comprehensive planning should be deferred to, but it should be deferred to regardless of the quality of the plan. Uh, and that's a very important point. Uh, so in that respect, it's very similar to Berman, although it doesn't use all the same expansive rhetoric. There are also ways that Justice O'Connor pointed out where you can get rid of Kilo while retaining some of Berman but cutting back on its most expansive language. And I think realistically, that's the first step that is going to be taken, if a step is going to be taken at all. In this area, as in most others, uh, you can't build Rome all at once. You have to build some of the easier parts first, and then you build the harder parts. But I'm all in favor of getting rid of Berman. And with that, we will conclude our panel. We're going to take a 10-minute break for water, and I believe there's coffee out there as well. The restrooms are either downstairs or straight down and around uh, in, the, in the Winter Garden. Uh, let's give a big round of applause to our panelists.